Welcome to the Alex Kennedy Podcast, which is powered by BasketballNews.com. This is episode number 23, and today I'm joined by a special guest. He's an NBA writer who works for Dime Up Rocks and a number of other publications. You can follow him on Twitter at JackFrank underscore JJF. My guest is Jackson Frank. Jackson, thanks for joining me. How are you? Doing pretty well. Pretty well. Appreciate you having me on today. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, there's so much to talk about. But I want to start, before we get into some postseason talk, I want to discuss a big story that's gotten a lot of attention over the last 24 hours. Sam Amick and Tim Cato of The Athletic wrote an article about the Dallas Mavericks front office and how Bob Volgaris, who is a gambler, uh, analytics guy, big on NBA Twitter, he's kind of become a shadow GM of sorts, according to the article. They describe him as the most influential voice in the front office, and their sources said that he has the power to adjust Rick Carlisle's starting lineup and rotations, that he single-handedly determined who Dallas would select in last year's draft without even consulting the scouts that he initiates or approves every move. Uh, Also, apparently Luka Doncic isn't a big fan of his and seemingly wants him gone. So it's a really interesting story. I would definitely recommend everyone give it a read. Uh, It's also worth noting that Mark Cuban called the article, quote, total BS and pushed back on some of the claims about the amount of power that Bob has. Uh, But Sam and Tim and The Athletic are are very credible. And it seemed like there were multiple sources from, you know, different People, you know, whether it's the organization, uh, people in different camps, there were a lot of people they talked to. So it was a very interesting article. Uh, and again, those those people are very credible, a very credible outlet. W- what were your thoughts on that whole situation? Yeah, it. I mean, it was it was kind of. I mean, I'm on the West Coast, so I guess it was kind of an early morning, you know, bombshell. Obviously, it was a little later on the, on the East Coast, but um, it it was surprising. Um, I. I, I didn't I mean obviously I don't I'm not I don't have any sources within the math or things like that, but um, you know, it, it's one of those things where whenever a superstar kind of reaches a point where maybe his his ability out outclasses kind of the, the team's ceiling to to a big degree, and that's where Luke is at, obviously you know, he's been a top five to seven player at worst last couple of years, and the Mavs have you know have zero playoff series wins so far. Um and so it I don't think that was the main thing of it, but it but it, that was the biggest takeaway to me is it's like no, the clock is not ticking on Luca and Dallas, but there was a certain level of framing that is certainly a, a situation to to monitor in a way that it was is surprising because I think after on I don't know if it was exit interviews or after their the game seven loss, Luca basically said that he's going to sign with Supermax. He didn't say he would, but he was like, you know, the answer to that I think is his phrase or something like that. Yeah. Um, and you don't really, I mean, you expect it maybe in year two or three of that deal. You don't expect it even before he signed or he's even you know exhausted his his kind of rookie contract. So that was the biggest thing I, I took out of it is that, um, that by no means does it mean Luca is, is leaving in the year, but um, there's a certain level of friction within between him and the organization or the higher, some of the higher ups, how they have the, how they how they've approached things, excuse me, um, that, you know, could, could be a factor down the road, whether it's a half a decade or three or four years that, um, you know, it's, it's not, a, it's not, a, I mean, it's a rare thing, but it's not a Damon Lillard port, you know, Portland relationship there, um, which again is, is fairly rare, but, um, there's just kind of rumblings, you know, no, I wouldn't say rumblings, just the way they framed it was very clear that yes, he's still committed to the organization, still likes things, but um, there's a certain level of friction that is, you know, uh, something to monitor, which is never a, never a great thing to have after, after only three years and two, two playoff appearances. Yeah, it was pretty shocking. I think the part that interested me was the, the Luca element of it. The bat, you know, they basically said, Luca's frustrated. He is concerned about the amount of power this guy has and, and things like that. And I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but it almost felt like 
this started as an article that maybe they were tipped off from someone in Luca's camp or someone close to Luca saying, hey, this guy has been a problem, blah, blah, blah. And then they almost started delving in and looking deeper and then started talking to people in the organization and around the front office. And then that's where all these other stories started coming from. So even if, you know, Mark Cuban obviously pushed back against it very hard, called it an opinion piece and they didn't reach out to him, which it is kind of strange. They didn't reach out to Cuban before it went up. But I think uh, even if 50% of it's true. Um, that, so was his... Sorry to interrupt, but was yeah. he so with his quotes added after the fact? Because he was he there's he's quoted in there twice. Yeah. So him. I think on Twitter he claimed that they didn't reach out to him before it was published. And then once it was published, they talked to him and they added some of his quotes in as soon as they spoke to him after it was up. So I think it said they tried to reach out to Bob on Sunday. So I guess mm-hmm. a few days before. But yeah, with with uh with Mark, apparently they posted, they updated it and added some quotes in afterwards, which he criticized he basically said that there's a reason they didn't want me to read it before it went up because they knew i would push back against it and said it wasn't true but well, so i mean it's not, it's not how journalism works mark <laughs> <laughs> but that is, i didn't i didn't know that part and i don't know i mean i i'd love to hear maybe what their perspective is on that yeah but i didn't know i because i read it you know i read it 8 15 or 8 30 you know pacific coast time or pacific standard time uh but i i don't i don't i didn't know that 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 was kind of his angle of it i i just thought so i that's I, I just wanted to kind of clarify that because I, I would love to maybe hear Tim Sam's perspective there as well. Um, but that was just interesting to me that I, I didn't know that it was his, his stance that they, they, they went to him for comment after the fact, which to me is a little, I mean, I don't really believe that uh, not to certain not to say that Marcus line necessarily, but I think Tim and Sam are, I just said, very credible reporters. That doesn't seem like something they would do. Um, so, I mean, who, who knows uh, on that part, but that, that is, I just want to, I'm just curious about that. I didn't know quite, quite how that played out. Yeah, with Sam and I mean, there's certain sources that if something like this came out, people would just write it off or say, oh, it's not true, especially with Mark Cuban denying it so forcefully. But when you look at Sam and Tim and and how credible they are, the fact that The Athletic, I mean, they they break news all the time. And I think they have some pretty strict sourcing policies and things like that. It's hard to imagine just everything in this article being false. There has to at least be, you know, even if Mark disagrees with certain elements of it. Certainly, this is someone's opinion, and they talked to a lot of different people. So it seems like the guys made a few enemies. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. One thing they did note in the article is that his contract is expiring. Mm-hmm. Um, so they could just, you know, not renew his deal and then potentially let him go that way. But it'll be interesting. Uh, you know, Mark did say that he's been a great uh, source. He helps Rick Carlisle, and he's been great for data, but he doesn't have more power than the other data analysts. So we'll see what happens. But it was just a big story right now, so I definitely wanted to pick your brain on it. But let's talk about the playoffs. I saw something on your Twitter feed the other day about Joel Embiid, just his impact this postseason. And I think there's been some debate over who's the best player in these playoffs. And Embiid certainly has a case. Uh, he's averaging 27.4 points, 9.9 rebounds, 3.5 assists, a block and a steal, You know, shooting the ball well from the field and from three. Do you feel like Embiid has been the best player this postseason? I might have cursed him after after yesterday, after yesterday when he went four of twenty. Uh, was still very good defensively, but uh, I think he certainly still has the best claim. I think it would be kind of among him, Kawhi, and, and KD for me right now. Um, you know, guys like Luke would be up there. Dame was obviously fantastic in his first round series. Probably didn't play quite enough, you know, in, in the playoffs. Um, Jokic was was pretty good. Um, you know, had some struggles, but I would still lean Embiid. I think the the fact that he's putting up the same level of scoring production he did in the regular season, but being even more impactful defensively. Um, when and when he just had he was he just finished second in MVP um, voting, so I would go with him. But I but I totally get kind of maybe the the appeal of a guy like KD or Kawhi. Um, you know, Kawhi has been Kawhi's scoring efficiency this this postseason is I think even better than Embiid's if I recall. 
Um, he's at like 20, I think he's averaging like 30 on like 68% true shooting or something like that. Um, just, I mean, just a monster as a scorer there. And he's been pretty good defensively, I think, especially since the last, first, first couple of games against the Mavs. I think he's kind of raised his level of intensity there. Um, but I would still go with Embiid. I think he's just, just the way he's scoring, the way he's impacting offense and then with the rim protection and, and kind of doing everything that the, the six are asking him in, in different coverages with, with ball screens and pick and rolls has been incredible, but um, I wouldn't begrudge anyone if they chose Kawhi or even, even Katie, even though Katie's officially has tapered off a little bit since the, since the Nets have been undermanned, um, you know, they're supposed to get hardened back um, you know, tonight, but obviously Kyrie missed about half of half of game four um, when they've been out hardened for the first, you know, four games. So I would lean Embiid, but I think at the very least he is in, in the discussion and he's playing basketball as well as anyone else right now in the world. And the way I try to preface it is I don't, I'm not saying he's the best player in the NBA. That's not what I mean. I think there are so many guys who can state that clamor. You can go, LeBron, Steph, Giannis, Luka, Kawhi, all these different guys, um, Jokic, of course. But uh, he, right now, the way he is playing is as good as anyone else, and I think that is, you know, that's that's how you win titles. I'm not saying the Sixers are going to win, but um, you, generally, you generally need one of those guys who can, can provide that level of impact most of the time. And that's what that's what he's done through the first, you know, I think he's played eight eight games, seven full games in the playoffs. Yeah, he's been incredible. So this uh, this series, the Sixers and Hawks, it's now tied at 2-2. Uh, what are your thoughts on what we've seen from the Sixers, and are there any things they need to do differently going forward? Yeah, I mean, obviously they, they, they amended a lot of the things that ailed them in game one. You know, they don't have Danny Green on Trey anymore. Obviously they they changed that after game game one, but they couldn't do that because Danny Green is, is out with the, with the sprain, strained calf, excuse me, strained calf for at least a week and a half or so more. Um, they, they changed that up. They're being more aggressive with how they defend Trey and pick and rolls, not letting him get into the paint with space. That was the huge issue in game one where they, you know, they Trey just got, got downhill so much and had all this open space to either shoot the floater or finish the rim or make kickout passes to the four or five different very good shooters that the Hawks have. Um, but I think what they, what they struggled with beyond just Embiid going 0 of 12 in the second half, um, was they got away from what I think worked well for them offensively. You know, they scored 62 points, in the first half of game four, they're up 62-49 at halftime, 38 in the second half. Uh, but what worked when they really had that big run, I think it was a 17-3 to run where they stretched the lead to 17, eventually 18 in the second quarter. They played a lot through the post. They did stuff through Joel. They played through Ben Simmons. Obviously, Tobias Harris is a good post-up player as well. And I thought they got away from that in the second half. So that would be the big thing if I'm watching. How many, you know, They're going to do a film session today, obviously. Um, if I'm watching that on film as a, as a member of the Sixers, I would say because that's the big thing that, that we shifted as we went away from the post where we got a lot of great looks, the offense was flowing, and we tried to run more pick and rolls. And there's a place for pick and rolls within the Sixers offense, but they're not that type of team, right? I mean, they they never had kind of that lead perimeter ball handler. I mean, Joel is their best player, is the best offensive player. You're going to run things through him. Uh, and you have two other guys who can do stuff through the post. Obviously, Ben's more of a facilitator through the post, but he's still still a threat there. And then Tobias has been a very good post-up player as well. So that's the big thing I think they need to shift. But defensively, they were great. I mean, I know Trey had 18, 18 uh, assists and they and the Hawks missed a lot of threes and struggled from two-point range. But I think they're kind of the Sixers' size and, and mobility has really given them some issues. So um, defensively, I don't I don't really have any kind of things that need to improve. But offensively, kind of maybe not going so pick-and-roll heavy and trying to lean more back into the post, which is a weird thing to kind of do in 2021. But they are, they are an atypically structured team, and I think they have the personnel to make it work offensively in that way.
I want to thank our sponsor, BetQL. If you want an edge over the sports books during the NBA playoffs, you need to download BetQL, the only app you'll need to make smart bets. Their best bet algorithm scans over 350,000 bets per year to give you the best bet recommendation for every game across all major sports. They also give you the reasoning behind why you should place the bet. BetQL also has tons of other tools like sharp data so you can see who the pros are backing and line movement so you can jump on betting opportunities in real time. Plus, you can save all your picks in one place to track your success and winning streaks as well as view your rank on their leaderboards head to the app store or google play store now to download betql enter the discount code bbnstream at payment checkout for 25 percent off any of their subscription offerings they also have some deals right now because the nba playoffs are going on but definitely enter that code bbnstream for 25 percent off don't miss out on the chance to beat your sports book this summer and then I want to get your thoughts on this Bucks net series too. Then we'll go out West. Uh, James Harden supposed to play tonight. Um, I've seen kind of a mixed reaction on Twitter. People saying, you know, maybe they shouldn't be rushing him back. And it seems like if Kyrie were still out there, he probably wouldn't be playing, but um, hopefully that doesn't lead to any kind of other kind of injuries. Um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how effective he can be. Uh, but this series has been so interesting. You know, we saw Brooklyn dominate in the first two games and it seemed like Milwaukee was kind of reverting back to their old ways. Spencer Davies wrote a great article for us at basketballnews.com looking at just how different uh, Milwaukee was playing in this series versus in the first round and, and kind of what worked in the regular season. They kind of went away from that between Budenholzer, Chris Milton's shot selection. Uh, there was a number of different things that they were you know, doing differently, how Giannis was being utilized. Um, and then now they've been able to tie the series up. What are your thoughts on kind of what we've seen from Milwaukee the last two games and where are you kind of at in the series? Who, who do you think is going to come out of the series? Yeah, it's, it's been such a weird series, honestly. Uh, I mean, like you said, first two games, Brooklyn dominated even without Harden. Um, looked like they I mean, I wouldn't say they're going to sweep. I mean, that's everyone says after you go up 2-0, but looked like they were going to win that series with some, with some level of comfort. Um, and then, you know, a game game three happens. Joe Harris can't hit the, you know, the bottom of the lake, even though he got a bunch of open shots. Um, Katie, you know, found a stride late in the second half or in the second half, but still had a subpar shooting game. Um, Kyrie started a little bit too, and the Bucks were able to kind of grind out a defensive oriented game. Um, but, but I still, I still kind of felt like the Bucks were the, the, the Nets were in control. I mean, just like watching that game, they got so many good looks. I thought they were going to rebound. And then, um, you know, the, the Bucks find a little bit of offensive rhythm in the first half to of game four. And I think the Nets were up by maybe 11 in the second quarter. Um, the, the Bucks go on a run field by some transition plays, some stops, getting some good looks. Uh, the, obviously the offense still wasn't good in that game, but then Kyrie goes down and there's just not enough offense around the Nets. You know, they, they really started crowding KD even more because that's what you should do when you only have one really high level score. I mean, Joe Harris is a good player, but um, you're going to live with Joe Harris, you know, threes over KD pull-ups or shots like that. So um, I, I, I think if Harden is eighty percent of himself, seventy percent of himself, they should be fine. I think they just—I just think they're a better team. Um, I thought they, they could have won even with Kyrie, and obviously Harden. You know, I wouldn't say eighty percent of Harden is a much better player than Kyrie, but um, you still at least you still get kind of a similar caliber of player, but different different style. So I, I would lean the Nets, but soft soft tissue injuries are, are tough. Um, I'm, I'm not going to be the one like we well, shouldn't play. Um, it's his control. I'm not going to say one over the other. I, 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 I'm I am concerned, but it's not my place to say whether he should, you know, it's his decision at the end, end of the day. Sure. Um, but it, but it is, it's 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 different than to me than maybe a different type of injury because that's I mean, it's, it's a recurring injury, too, for him. Right. It's not like he just it's the second or third. I think he he aggravated it once and then it, he had a setback in rehab, if I recall, um, that prolonged his you know delay or his return or delayed his return. Um, and that was the third time in you know, four months. So um 
I, I still lean the Nets because I, I can't just assume, okay, Harden's going to get injured. But um, but I do think that's there's certainly kind of a level of injury risk that you know wouldn't necessarily be there if there's maybe a different type of injury, especially because it's soft tissue and one that's been ailing him for you know three or four months on and off now. Yeah, so working with uh, Aton Thomas here at Basketball News, he's a big proponent of you know the team needs to protect the players from themselves that's been something that he says a lot we have these watch parties where we all jump on and watch a game over zoom together and you know he he said that throughout the regular season he said during last year's playoffs um you know with when anthony davis tried to play last series in the elimination game he made the same art argument and wrote a big article about it you know he feels like players are always going to try to play and they basically should but you know it's on the team to step in and remind them of the long-term risks and basically protect them from themselves. Now there's other players like James Posey who also works with us. And his argument is no, the guy should be able to determine whether he plays or not. You know, he should have the ultimate say there and uh, you're not going to tell a guy he can't play essentially. So there's, I see both sides of it. Uh, but you know, Atan is always a big proponent of no, this guy should be held out. And I think like, for example, Mike Conley with Utah, you know, I'm sure Mike Conley wants to play, but Utah seemingly has been, basically saying no we're going to protect you and and give you time so i i see both sides of it uh it'll, hopefully nothing else happens hopefully there is no new injury or you know he re-injures himself you know and and is out for even longer that would be awful hopefully it doesn't happen but i see both sides of debate I, I think with the injuries to so many stars i feel like that's kind of the story of this postseason when you talk about harden irving and you know donovan mitchell missed the game mike conley's out uh chris paul had his injury Luca had the neck injury, even though he didn't miss any time. Always missed the entire postseason or missed the entire postseason with his injury. Right. Yeah. It's, it's what are your me, thoughts on I, that? For me, with the entire kind of you know the, the balance between you know, not, you know letting a player choose. For me, I I think I side more with the idea that it's the it's the training staff's kind of responsibility to make sure to kind of protect players themselves. But I but I can't ever really speak on individual cases because I don't I don't know what kind of the power dynamic is there. I don't know is it Harden really pushing to play or is it the the training staff saying, well, you're good enough. Or is the training staff saying, well, I guess you can play. So I, I can't ever, I try to kind of stay away from specific cases, but that's my general philosophy that I would, I would kind of side with, you know, the training staff has a certain responsibility um, because players are, I mean, you don't get to, a, you don't get to the kind of the pinnacle of your craft without having a certain level of competitive drive. Uh, and so they're always going to want to play. I mean, you know, Embiid, I mean, I know that, I know the performance because the level, the, the, the level of severity differs across each case. Um, but he, I mean, I thought I mean, he would miss, I thought, I thought he would at least miss one game for this series. And he's obviously played every single one and was great the first three games. So, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, there was a study, I think Baxter Holmes of ESPN wrote an article, um, maybe in conjunction with Kevin Pelton as well, if I recall, um, that talked about kind of this condensed schedules, you know, scientifically proven that there's more injuries because of it. I think soft tissue, I think was maybe the language they used. I don't recall exactly. I could be, could be getting too detailed there, but, um, yeah, I mean, the NBA is really pushed to kind of make sure this this season gets done before the, before the Olympics. Um, I, and I, I, and I understand that the NBA players association agreed to it and things like that, but it does feel like they've just been, been too kind of beginning. They want to play 72 is to get kind of all the, the revenue from the TV deals. I think that's the minimum number of games you can play. Um, but I, I do think there's been, I think there's been, I, I don't, I don't know the exact language used. I want to be delicate, but I do think there's been a level of kind of not entire regard for player safety in the season. Um, and, and just that, that article that came out really kind of affirmed it. everything else before that. And I'd been vocal about it before it both been speculation, but that article that said that the condensed schedule was contributed to these things um, kind of solidified it. But again, I, I don't want to be too over the top because I know the players, you know, supported it and that they, they agreed to it. But I do think that 
everyone involved should have been a little more mindful of how the season would would kind of unfold. That's not to say you could predict it, but um, and you, and some of these injuries are just kind of the way they go, um, unfortunately. But I do think that there could have been a lot more, you know, kind of understanding of maybe what this condensed season might do. Um, not just because of you know, both mentally and physically, of course. So we're talking kind of about the physical side of it, but there's certainly a mental strain of being isolated for so long. And now it's, you know, there's a little more freedom with fans being back and maybe the, the COVID restrictions being lifted, but to an extent, but, but yeah, I, I think that there should have been a little more, you know, regard for kind of how this might affect players you know, mentally and physically this season. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the short off season was tough on a lot of players and that's especially the teams that you know played deep into the postseason last year that was very difficult and then on top of that the condensed season I talked to a number of players uh you know Nick Vucevic uh Larry Dance Jr. I interviewed some of these guys on my podcast and we talked about just the what it's like in this condensed season Miles Turner and you know two of those guys ended up having pretty significant injuries and missing a lot of time and they just talked about how brutal it was uh you know, just playing so many games and in so few nights and there was no practice time and it was such a weird year. So I think we're going to see a lot of guys this offseason just take a break and and relax. And I think it'll be interesting to see how many guys actually participate in the Olympics. Like, it wouldn't surprise mm-hmm. me. I know we saw, I believe, Damian Lillard and Draymond Green committed. Yeah, uh, that came out this morning, I believe. I thought, yeah, I thought I saw that. So I, there will be some stars that do it, but I think a lot of guys, I mean, I know LeBron James had been telling Jerry Colangelo and people at Team USA that he was going to do it. And then I think after once the, apparently that's something that Colangelo had said on the record. Uh, and, and then once I think he kind of saw how this season unfolded and just how difficult it was having the injury, then he changed his mind, obviously. So I'm curious to see how many guys, even if they had committed verbally, uh, change their mind and decide to just take a break this off season, because I think it was a brutal year for a lot of guys. We've seen so many injuries. It's going to be interesting to see, you know, next year, does it get back to normal and you have fewer injuries or is this something that affects, you know, multiple seasons? That's something that I'm curious to see. Yeah. I'm, but, I'm really curious that too, because, you know, I know that they released kind of the tentative dates for the, the next season and it'll be a, it'll be the same. The largest season will be the normal length, 82 games with like over eight months or whatever. I guess not 82, 82 games over six months, excuse me, than the playoffs. Um, but it's still a shorter off season. If I recall, I mean, this season will end, you know, in, in late July, I think game seven is scheduled of the finals scheduled for July 29th if that happens. So uh, at best, I mean, at, at the, at a maximum, if that's the case, you're getting two months in between, you know, the end of, so I mean, let's say it's the, the, the Nets and, and Suns, you know, at a minimum, you know, Chris Paul is getting two months in between that and, in you know, the start of training camp. So I really am curious there as well as, is, is it, is it just the condensed in-season schedule or is it also have to do with the, you know, the shortened off-season? But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, obviously since I've been covering the Sixers, you know, they, I mean, Tobias Harris talked, I think one day they like two days off and he was like, it felt like a vacation. Um, just having two days like away from, you know, I think, I think it was after maybe uh, they haven't, they haven't, they're one of the teams that's not disclosed what players are vaccinated and whatnot, but mm-hmm. I think he kind of, you know, he might, he, he maybe hinted like he didn't have to do COVID testing or anything like that. He just had two days off to relax at home and it felt like he was, he was vacationing, um, which is just a, a, I think that's a great way to kind of articulate and summarize what the season's been like for all players involved that, you know, just two days off away from the court and you know, maybe away from COVID testing. I don't know if that's for sure on that side of it, but yeah, um, just, you know, just that level of kind of reprieve has been such a, such a welcome addition for guys that hasn't always been there because they've played so many games, especially the second half of the year that was really kind of, you know, really, ju- not, I won't say jumbo, but really pushed together because of some, you know, some, some postponements in the first half because of COVID outbreaks and, and whatnot. And the fact that they left kind of the second half empty or, or unscheduled. So uh, yeah, I've been a tough year for a lot of guys. I know that they'll all be looking forward to 
um, you know, having some rest if they choose to take it. And it's been really kind of taught me to, to really value empathy as I cover the league this year. I've always tried to do that, but even this year where it's been so, so much tougher for a lot of guys too. For sure. Yeah. I think people don't realize what's happening behind the scenes too. Like Troy Brown Jr. wrote an article for us when he was still with the Wizards and basically broke down like the outbreak that happened with Washington. And just, I don't think people realize these guys are getting tested twice a day that, you know, there's all these different protocols that they're trying to follow. So a lot of them are basically, you know, on their own and, and completely isolated when they're on the road. And, um, and, and yeah, there's times where, you know, they're, they're going to try to practice and get in one of the few practices that they actually had this season, but then it gets delayed or canceled because all the COVID test results are in. There's just so many things happening. So it isn't even just the schedule. It's how different this year is with COVID. And I, I, you know, props to the NBA. I, I do want to applaud them for even having a season and being able to have the, you know, put the season together. And I know a lot of people have worked really hard to, to make that happen. But yeah, behind the scenes, there has been so much. So I'm sure a lot of players are excited next year to have the normal schedule back, even if it is going to be, you know, a shortened offseason still. But let's get back to uh, some playoff talk here. I think the Phoenix Suns have been one of the most impressive teams, if not the most impressive team this postseason. Uh, but then you also have people who are quick to point out. Some people are saying, oh, well, they did it against a beat-up Lakers team that was without uh, AD for certain games, and LeBron was barely back, and they had injuries. Then this Nuggets team, oh, they didn't have Jamal Murray, and Michael Porter Jr. seemed banged up, and Will Barton was 100%. P.J. Dozier was out. Um, some people you know, seem like they want to discredit what the Suns have done. Do you think this Suns team is good enough to win a championship this year? Yeah, absolutely. And my and my counter to the idea that oh, like yes, they've they've benefited from injury. Like that's you can't work around that. But they they're kicking every team's butt right now. Like they, they <laughs> yeah. swept the, they swept the Nuggets and one game was close. Really, I think maybe game four was kind of close. Maybe maybe game one or two. I might be mistaken there. Um, but they they did what they should have done against an undermanned Nuggets team. They they outclassed them on both ends. Uh, and when the when the when the Lakers without AD, they did the same thing. They just they just they destroyed them. And so, yes, you could play, maybe it would have been a different series. And I agree that like I, for most of the year, I thought the Lakers would still win the title. Um, and I obviously they never got, full, I said, well, I preps with fully healthy. It never happened. So I'm not saying that like I, I wasn't wrong, but um, I think that would have, I think those series definitely would have gone differently, but I'm not going to sit here and say that the Nuggets Suns couldn't have won. I mean, the Suns were a great team all year. They went, they were second best record in the NBA. Um, and so that's just my counter is the idea that like, Oh yeah, they're the only one to be because like, but they're doing what they're like. They're they're playing lesser teams, but they're winning very comfortably because they're a really really good team, as we've seen basically from day one this season. So I think they absolutely can win. They they're my pick right now. I wouldn't say it's my pick to win, but they're my pick to come out of the West, which isn't some like brave take. They're the only team in the Western Conference Finals right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think they're absolutely good enough. Uh, and it would be cool, you know, to see a team that maybe doesn't you know, kind of maybe similar to the you know the 04 Pistons in the sense that you know, Devin Booker and, and Chris Paul are great players but they're not you know they're not in the top 5 discussion which is kind of what you needed the last I mean basically throughout all of NBA history to win a title so um, it would be really cool to kind of see just more kind of I just always like to see different types, different styles and approaches to team building and coaching win um, I think that would be a cool way to kind of maybe see kind of the the I guess kind of the cliche that the sum is greater than the, you know uh, whatever that phrase is I'm gonna I'm gonna botch it of course yeah but, than the parts uh, yeah but uh, yeah I think they absolutely can win a title and I just I think trying to discredit them through kind of referencing their opponents you know lack of health fails to acknowledge the fact that they're easily winning these games. No, I totally agree with you. You did a terrific article on Mikhail Bridges and it you look looked at his journey to this point and kind of his upbringing and uh, also, you know, just kind of 
how who who he is and, and why he is the person and player he is today. I thought it was a fantastic piece. I would definitely recommend everyone check it out. I know it's pinned on your Twitter profile, so everyone go read that. Um, I, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who's a big Suns fan, and I was saying that I think Bridges could eventually become a star. I'm I'm a really big fan of his game. I know right now he is more of a three and D you know role player type, but um, and I and he basically said you know there's not a lot of people that believe that. I know a lot of Suns fans do, but there really hasn't been much discussion nationally about bridges and whether he could become a star or not i think a lot of people think that he's really good in his role but you know some people question if he has that upside because he was a bit older when he was drafted and things like that what do you think bridges ceiling is yeah i I think i think star is kind of low level star i think the guy that i've often comped him to in some ways would be a guy like chris middleton um which i guess maybe is just maybe cherry picking the physical dimensions long-limbed kind of slender wings um but I think there are a lot of similarities in the sense that, like, if I recall, I mean, I was maybe I wouldn't say I was too young, but it was before I was covering the NBA. And if I recall, I mean, Middleton, you know, came in the league as more of a defensive oriented guy and kind of, yeah. you know, and, and kind of has, has worked to, I mean, to really grow his offensive game to the point where he is now. Um, and so I think there are kind of similarities there. So I think Middleton kind of at his best has been a, maybe one or two seasons as a top 25 guy, um, kind of generally the top 30-ish, top 35 guy the last few years. Um, maybe since Bud took over, um, Bud's in his third year now. So um, I think I think star, you know, low level star is certainly within the realm of possibility. And it's like, yeah, he's he's older for you know his you know came he came out a little older, but like guys typically speak. I think research has shown him around the twenty seven to twenty eight yep. year uh, range, and he's only twenty. I mean, he turned twenty five this summer, so he's still I mean, he's still got two or three years to reach that point. And the strides he's made the season offensively, like he, he he shows mid range pull up a little more. You know, he's I mean he shot he's. He kind of like he finally got back to that level he was at Villanova, you know, his last couple of years as a three-point shooter, you know, 42.5% in the regular season. I don't know. I don't think he's been quite as good in the postseason from three, but uh, he's been incredible on twos because he's a great cutter and uh, is probably and one of the best, like, wing transition player. I mean, just the way he runs on the floor so hard is awesome. So I certainly think that level of impact is by no means outside of the realm of possibility, just the way he's he's grown, kind of the expanded offensive role he's kind of allowed to have. Now, again, he's not, he's not doing a ton with the ball in his hands, but – you see a little bit more, you know, attacking closeouts, you know, 12 to 15 foot pull-ups. Maybe in the next couple of years, he starts to run a couple of side pick and rolls, things like that, and get into his mid-range pull-up there. Um, would have to improve his handle a little bit there, but um, absolutely, I think there's a chance he's a top 35-ish player. Um, I think anyone who's kind of in the discussion for all-star candidacy is kind of in that range. And so I, I certainly kind of agree with you that he, he has a chance to get there in the next few years. For sure. Yeah. And everyone, again, make sure you check out that piece. It was a fantastic read. Uh, so you mentioned that you have the Suns coming out of the Western Conference. Who do you have coming out of the East? And as of right now, who's your pick to win it all? Oh, man. Put me on the spot with all these injuries. <laughs> uh, all these injuries kind of. It is tough times. Uh, I, I've been a net proponent for a while. I still want to leave the Nets because, again, I don't want to predict an injury. Um, and I can't remember. I guess I don't want to predict a re-injury with Harden. And I, yeah. I know that. I mean, the fact that Kyrie, I think, was ruled out yesterday um, is not a great sign. Um, typically, any guy who's ruled out the day before a game happens means he's a little ways away from returning. Um, but I still want to go them. I, I just, I just think if they have two, two of those three guys, you know, kind of clicking on some some level of mostly full capacity, they're just too good. And I, I think the role players have been really good this year as well. Um, that's part of the reason they were able to win 48 games in the regular season, despite. I think Katie and Harden and Kyrie play like 10 games together, seven games together in the regular season because they have depth with guys like Joe Harris. You know, Jeff Green was on the men for a bit, but he's back. You know, Bruce Brown's been phenomenal. Um, Landry Shamich really kind of figured things out after a tough start to the year. 
Um, Nick Claxton's a nice, you know, big man. Uh, Blake's been great for them, especially in the playoffs, or especially this round. I would say he was, he was okay in the first round, but um, I just think they have enough kind of love, you know, between the, the star power and the depth. I think they're really well positioned, and you know, I think they, I think they would kind of easily coast through title if all three of those guys are out there. Um, but I still think they can win if two of the three are out there, especially if it's Katie and Harden, who I think are kind of the, the two best guys in that that big three, which is not to diminish Kyrie, but. Um, I still want to go with the Nets as my kind of my pick out of the out of the East and to win it all, but uh, I won't be surprised if any of the the seven teams remaining. Uh, well, that's not. I, I would be surprised if the Hawks won. I will say, um, but I, I would be surprised if any of the seven teams remaining uh, end up winning uh, any of the six besides the Hawks. I'm like, sorry, to any Hawks fans, but uh, <laughs> I've sometimes seen them win. But they've had a great year, and anyone who's listened to my work and or listened to me talk about them and whatnot knows I'm a proponent of them. So. Um, I'll go with the Nets, but I don't. I don't feel great about it because of their injury situation. But I do think just just the fact that Harden's supposed to play tonight will give them the benefit of the doubt for the time being, with the caveat that it could certainly um, blow up on me in five minutes into Game Five tonight. So, uh, yeah, my tentative pick, but I don't feel great about it at the moment. No, I like that, and you're in. It is an interesting year where you have so many teams that can win it all. I, I think typically we see there's a, a smaller number of teams that actually have a legitimate chance. Or all season long, it seems like two teams are on a collision course. This year has been kind of different, uh, you know, especially right now, given the injuries and in the landscape. It does seem like there are a number of teams that could win it all, which is a lot of it's a lot of fun. It's exciting. Um, it's funny because all whenever the Nets kind of made their trades and knowing kind of how things we talked about, just how things are going behind the scenes and. Um, the lack of practice time and, and all this different stuff. I My thought was for most of the season, oh, the Sixers can beat the Nets because these guys have only played, as you mentioned, I think it's eight games together. I think it was seven for most of the year. Then they came back for like one or two. So it's it's eight or nine games together. Um, so and this is the hardest year in NBA history, I think, to get a new super team that was acquired or assembled midseason. Kind of everyone get on the same page just because you did have such – short practice time you have a first time head coach like i was looking at the circumstances and i was like this is really challenging for them and then you you the team you're gonna face with the sixers has a dominant center which their biggest weakness all year was you know facing centers and they they, they do have a number of new faces too but they do have a similar core that's been together for a while and developed chemistry so i was looking at it and i was like oh this is philly's best shot and i think this is i, I think most people agree that the Nets are going to be a really scary team, you know, come year two, three, four, assuming they stay together. You never know how long these windows uh, last or stay open. But It'll last shorter than anyone anticipates probably, but still, probably. still, uh, still a window for sure beyond this year. This is uh, the year to take advantage though. And if yeah. you're a team like Philly, you have to take advantage of this this year or Milwaukee because it's only going to get harder in future years. Yeah, I think so for me, I think the Nets, their big three has basically had chemistry since the outset, honestly, this year offensively. Yeah. Um, like they just, they just played so well off each other. It's been really, really fascinating to see. Um, but defense would be where my, my hesitancy is because in, in, and, but what's tough for me is in round, I mean, round one, like you compare the Nets effort level defensively against the Celtics or the Bucks. It's, it's, I mean, the cliche, it's night and day, honestly, but I, but at the same time, it's interesting to me because part of that, part of their struggles in round one, I mean, I don't know what, the, I don't know what the Celtics, I don't know what their numbers were offensively overall in that round one, but um, but the Nets definitely were not playing at the same level of kind of cohesion and communication they are this round. And, you know, there is a part of it that, you know, Harden was responsible to some degree. For, I don't think he was very good in the first round offensively. Um, and he hasn't really played in the second round. I and mean, that's the defense that looked great. I'm not saying that Harden's the reason for that, but I am curious how much, you know, how much kind of his, because he is a pretty non, I mean, he, he's good when he's engaged in terms of, you know, playing the post and rebound and things like that. Um, but off the ball, often he's pretty nonchalant. And so I am curious kind of to what degree that approach from him defensively was it wasn't part of the issue in round one 
At the same time, Kyrie's been better in round two. Joe Harris has been better. KD's been much better. So um, I think if anything, kind of their lack of playing time together has would be more, you know, kind of prevalent on the defensive end. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm curious to kind of see how they look tonight with Harden back because they've been really good defensively. Uh, obviously, the Bucks have done some things wrong, but uh, the, the Nets deserve a lot of credit for the way they've been able to switch and kind of close things off and play really physically and, and kind of make it work despite not having a really a, a legit center out there. Um, you know, and they're going up against a guy gone. So I think shot like 80% of the rim in the regular season on some ridiculous yeah. volume. Um, but that's the biggest thing I'm looking for is, you know, just what level, like, was, how much is it Harden? How much is just the entire team not really caring defensively in the first round versus how much is Harden responsible? So um, that's one thing I'll be looking for in tonight's game is just kind of how the Nets look defensively there uh, with Harden back and obviously no Kyrie because they've been great without him. That's not, I'm not trying to you know, imply correlation causation, but there's sure. a, a question to be answered there rather than maybe a concern. Well, and that was my thought process for much of the year. You know, everything I was saying about the lack of chemistry and, oh, well, they're going to face Embiid and he's their biggest weakness and blah, blah, blah. But I do have to say, like, having seen them now in the postseason and, and having watched them for much of the year, I, I, I do think I was wrong about, you know, how the lack of chemistry would impact them. Their role players, as you mentioned, stepped up. You know, for a while, I was like, well, they don't have much depth, but they have had a number of role players step up. Obviously, the buyout additions helped them a little bit too. You know, no one thought Blake Griffin would land there. Uh, and that was a surprise whenever no one thought even this version of Blake Griffin would, would land. Yeah, there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. hundred percent. So, I mean, I, I, I do think, uh, I do want to give them credit. I, I was probably, uh, you know, a bit too harsh and they haven't, they have impressed me, but, uh, it'll be interesting to see if, if we do get, uh, it'll be interesting to see how this Nets buck series concludes, but then also if we do get net sixers, I think that would be a lot of fun. So, We'll yeah. see there. Uh, one or two more things, and I'll let you go. You mentioned, you know, when you started kind of covering the NBA, just in relation to Chris Middleton's career. I'm curious, when did you get your start, and how did you kind of get your start as a writer? I know you've written for Dime, Uproxx, Liberty Baller as a setback. How did you initially get your start? Yeah, so I, so when I was a freshman in college, um, back in 2016-17, if I recall. It's not even that long ago. My goodness, I'm can't be getting older, my memory can't be that yet. But um, I, I joined the school newspaper my second semester, and I, I wrote a. I just really like kind of the idea of storytelling and kind of covering things in that way. And so I wrote a bunch that semester, and then you know my freshman year ended, and I I came home and I was like, I don't, you know, I want to keep doing something, you know. And so I was like, well, I like the NBA, I like writing about sports, and so I just found, you know, I just Google like NBA blogs or something like that, and uh, I came across Fanside and started covering, you know, writing about the Sixers for Sixers Sense. Um, and then I, you know, I realized that I, like. Twitter was a good way to kind of utilize my, you know, utilize or share your work. I didn't have many followers back then. Maybe I had 300, 400 when I started then. Um, and I was just tweeting out articles and I eventually kind of found some Sixers fans and Sixers writers and just kind of branched out from there. And then, you know, maybe a year later, Liberty Ballers reached out to me. I, started, I got in contact with Ian Levy, a fan sided. Um, and so it just kind of built from there. And obviously, you know, my, my Twitter audience has, has grown significantly and that's helped too. But um, which is kind of developing a love for, for writing um, and then kind of wanting and then just realizing I like watching the NBA very, you know, as a, just a casual fan and I'm trying to blend those things. And uh, I mean, it's just, it's just funny looking back kind of the articles I wrote you know, four years ago about the NBA to, to where it is now, but um, that's kind of, kind of how it started. Just wanting to write more and um, I've been, been very fortunate to have a great support system and also have a bunch of people who want to publish my work and, and support my work. And so I'm just kind of growing from there and kind of, you know, every, every six or seven months, just kind of make sure I'm not getting stagnant and things like that. But um, just kind of journalism, because I, I, I joined the newspaper because I, I didn't, I went from, you know, high school, you have all these things, you're doing sports and, and whatnot. And, and so I got, you know, my freshman year and just kind of did the freshman, cl- classic freshman things, you know, 
going out doing, you know, getting them mischief, mischievous things and, and whatnot. And I, I thought that I, not that I was like, oh, I, I hate this, but I just wanted some little, little more structure. And so I kind of got in contact with the paper and, and fell in love with it and kind of realized that covering the MBA in some capacity was what I was the, the way I wanted to kind of put my journalism degree to work. That's awesome. Yeah. I think uh, everyone, I think every writer hates going back and reading old stuff from a few years ago because I cannot stand any of my older articles. I completely agree with you. It's just like, who wanted to read this back in the day? I don't understand how anyone read this. So I, I, I totally email, my, email my editors from back in the day and say, I apologize. <laughs> you had to, you had to put up with this. I appreciate you putting on a brave face and uh, uh, giving me kudos for, for my work back in the day. You didn't have to, but they did it anyways. Exactly. So last question for you. If you had any advice for an aspiring sports writer, because some people ask this kind of stuff whenever we have writers on, we've had agents on, and, and I always try to, you know, ask for a piece of advice. Or was there any advice that helped you? Or do you have any advice you'd want to pass on to an aspiring sports writer? Yeah, I mean, I always want to preface these sort of things that I am I have been in a very fortunate position. Um, I know that not everyone could do what I do in the sense that I've been, you know, I've been able to be financially supported by my, by my family for the last year since I graduated. Uh, and I've gotten to a point where I can you know, can support myself now, but I I, would, I wouldn't be in the same position. So uh, preface all of that with it's important to have a really great support system. Um, my advice can't apply to everyone, of course, but um, I would say just always be inquisitive, um, like always try and get better, always trying to read other people's work. I've grown tremendously over the last few years because I've I read other people's work and I you know I I try and you know whether it's kind of taking their sort of writing style or trying to. Oh, I didn't, maybe I was watching the same game and I didn't quite pick up on that level of analysis. Maybe what could I do better in that way? So, um, you know, trying to carve out my own niche with with things, but at the same time, make clear that, you know, or make my make clear to myself that I that I have a long way to go and that there's a lot a lot of other talented people. So, um, I'm sure that's one that people talk about all the time. But honestly, it's it's genuinely putting that into practice. It's reading a bunch of work, like reading way more than you write. Um, I think has really helped me. But um, instead, like just also being willing, like being willing to put in the work. Um, you know, I. I, I, I work a lot. Um, I'm sure everyone does in this business, but, um, just being honest with yourself. So I don't think those would be the two biggest things is, you know, kind of always be trying to learn from other people. Um, but at the same time, don't let that derail kind of, and don't, don't, I mean, don't ever let that kind of, you know, make you feel inferior. I mean, there are times where, yeah, I, I wouldn't say I get envious, but you know, kind of times where that happens, but you always got to make sure that you're confident in yourself, but also not to the point of, not allowing yourself to grow because I know I know I I think I'm a good writer now I know probably when I'm 30 I'll look back on this and be like oh like I'll kind of poke fun at that when I was 17 or 18 so just always be willing to grow I think and trying to learn from other people is the biggest thing that I've benefited from from my five or six years as a writer that's a great yeah that's great advice I think the one thing that I you know advice that helped me was just don't be afraid to hear the word no and and don't be afraid Mm -hmm. of rejection because I think when you're in this position like, for example, I started covering games when I was super young and I reached out to the Magic's PR department and basically said, hey, can I come cover some games? And they were nice enough to let me go cover some games when I was 14, 15 years old. So I was able to get super, uh, you know, valuable experience at a very young age. Um, so I, I've always said whether you're reaching out about jobs or uh, interview requests or whatever it is, just put yourself out there and you might get 100 no's, but it's worth it for those you know, a couple of yeses that you get. So I think that's been the one that 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 was some advice that I got early on that has really helped me. But yeah, definitely. I, I completely agree with you. Like, you know, 
I've always read way more than I write. I'm constantly reading people's articles. And, um, and I think that's how, you know, that's why I found your work too, being able to read your stuff and just being blown away by like, you know, certain features you've written, some of your breakdowns and stuff like that. I'm, I'm constantly reading other people's stuff. And yeah, I think that, I think that's very helpful and an important part of this job. But I think most of us come into this job as huge NBA fans who'd be reading this stuff anyway. Um, so I, I, that's how I was. I was like, okay, well, I'm already digesting all of this NBA content anyway. So you know, it's just a, it's a, a plus it's icing on the cake that it actually ends up helping you and it makes you a better writer in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the Twitter bookmarks feature is like my best friend these days with always, always bookmarking stuff. I don't tend to read it, but, but yeah, the, the idea about, you know, people always say, don't, don't be afraid to take no for an answer, but it's I mean, legitimately true. Um, people like people always, and, and be persistent on it. Like whether with this stuff, like I, I have people that I always try to stay in contact with and, you know, if I ever maybe reach out to text them or something, I don't hear back. I'll send them another text. And I, yeah. And, and so, um, you know, things like that are really key. Like I, I'm sure for anyone who's listening that, you know, follows me on Twitter, sees all the success that I, I tout, but I have, I've had way more rejections, um, you know, that I, I don't ever publicize. Um, and that's, so that's just for me to like make clear that it's by no means been smooth sailing. I've been really beneficial. Benef- I've been really fortunate, excuse me, um, to kind of reach this point, but, uh, there's been a lot of, you know, no's throughout my career and I, you can't ever kind of let that derail you. And, um, you know, sometimes maybe, you just can't ever take it personally. I think is the biggest thing too. Is sometimes it's a lot. Of, a lot yeah. of times people say no. It's outside of their control, right? Um, and if they or if they say no, it's outside of your control too. And that's the biggest thing. Is just making clear that it's 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 never a reflection of your own you know kind of approach or skills or abilities. With when someone when someone rejects you, it's often just outside of your control. And and if they do, if they do, can always kind of use it to you know kind of see what you can do better the next time. Well said. Yeah. And I know it can turn into a yes from that same person a year from now. You never know. So yeah, always, I, I always just say, put yourself out there. I think that's that's something that helped me when I was first getting started. So I, I always try to pass that on. But uh, thank you so much for your time, man. This has been so much fun. I could pick your brain for hours. Uh, keep up the great work. I, I do want to say that. I, I love reading your articles. And I would tell everyone, make sure you're following Jackson on Twitter at Jack Frank underscore JJF. You do a fantastic job. And it's been awesome to see you know, different articles that you have working on and, and just the way that your your audience is growing, your following is growing. And it's it's great to see your hard work paying off, man. I appreciate the kind words and I appreciate anyone who does follow me. It's been, been a really, it's been a weird, you know, this is my first year postgrad. It's been a, been a weird first year to cover the NBA is kind of my, <laughs> my primary source of income. Uh, really yeah. strange, strange way to go about it, but it's been fun. I really kind of feel like I've taken a huge step forward in a lot of ways this year. So uh, appreciate the kind words and appreciate anyone who does kind of read my work and, and follow me on Twitter. Hopefully I'm not, hopefully I'm not too obnoxious with, with everything on there for anyone who follows me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, appreciate you having me on Alex. No, for sure. Yeah. And it'll only get easier from here. If you're, if this is your first year full time uh, in a year where there's no in-person interviews and everything's over zoom and uh, I can only imagine it'll be easier from here. So the fact that you're doing such great work right now is even more impressive. So props to you, man. It's been great to see your stuff. Appreciate. It. I'm looking forward to, to returning in in person interviews. I I have missed those. Zoom's been there's been some benefits of it, but for sure I am, I have missed kind of the one on one interviews that we haven't gotten. We take very, those for very granted. rarely. If they do happen, they're one they're over Zoom and there's still a level of intimacy missing from those. So I'm looking forward to to getting back into arena. Hopefully, we can do that in the next I guess by October or September of, of this year. Absolutely. Well, everyone, as I said, make sure you're following Jackson and check out all of his work. And if you want to hear more episodes of this podcast, check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere listen to podcasts. And until next time, thanks for listening.